Good day. You're listening to Free City Radio. I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is the 88th edition. Today I'm going to be sharing an interview from the archives. Um, I had the uh, Omicron COVID um, virus this week, so I wasn't able to keep up with doing a live interview. However, I did want to share um, and basically take this opportunity to share a few interviews from the archives that I haven't put out uh, through the podcast. I was thinking about an interview that I did with Palestinian poet um, Suher Hamid in uh, 2009. Uh, Suher visited Montreal and I recorded a conversation with her. I thought it would be interesting to share this exchange for a number of reasons. Uh, this was uh, recorded just as the uh, global boycott, divestment and sanctions movement, the BDS movement was getting going. So it was really just uh, starting to take root uh, in communities around the world. Um, now, as we know, uh, the BDS movement in support of Palestinian human rights uh, is very strong in different places internationally. Um, I think it's often important to try to sort of trace and understand how grassroots movements globally take shape and also the figures and cultural figures specifically within the context of those movements that play a role in providing the artistic and cultural um, stage for uh, such movements to really develop. And Suhair Hamad has obviously played a very important role within the Palestinian diaspora in North America and globally in communicating the Palestinian struggle and um, the demands for Palestinian human rights uh, internationally and also has been very present at Palestinian cultural events around the world. And I think that there's a very important confluence between the emergence of diaspora Palestinian artists around the world uh, involved in the hip-hop world, involved in contemporary art, involved in many different spheres, and the BDS movement. They're distinct, they're different, but they're related. And I think it's always important to sort of to see the strength of movements as expressed um, in more non-sloganeering um, ways. How are movements expressed through the arts um, and through individual artistic voices? Uh, obviously, a movement is made out of multitudes, so a, a, a big number of different voices addressing the issue from different perspectives. And we hear Suhair Hamid's reflections on uh, her place at that moment as a Palestinian in the diaspora. Um, so here's our conversation uh, for this edition of Free City Radio. I'm Stefan Christophe in Montreal. Thanks for uh, keeping with us. And uh, here's my conversation with Suhair, recorded in 2009 for CKUT Community Radio here in Montreal. Let's first um, talk about Artists Against Apartheid. Okay. Um, you followed, of course, the movement internationally mm -hmm. against apartheid in South Africa. Today, increasingly, we're seeing artists playing an important and central role in the struggle for Palestinian liberation. Do you think that we'll see the same level of participation from the artistic community? That's a good question. 
I always go back to questioning the artist mm. about what they believe art can do. And therefore, if an artist believes that the vibration of their art alone, the intention of their art and the manifestation of their art can bring about true transformation of human opinion and behavior, then I feel there is no place that artists should not go. That includes everywhere. If you truly believe your art can transform a human being's opinion and behavior, there should be no place that you do not go. If you do not believe that, <laughs> then there are political decisions that you need to make. When I think of like the individual artist, when Erica Badu went to Israel last year, she contacted Jackie Saloum, she contacted me, she contacted people she knew and that she did not know. When she got into Palestine, she met up with Palestinian rappers. As you know, as soon as she got to Tel Aviv, she was questioned about who she listens to and why. So for me, her going was a decision maybe made by her record company or her managerial uh, company. This is the other thing that one must think about is are we talking about commercial artists or artists who are completely outside of the market. Um, but once the decision was made for her, she then went on to inform herself, empower herself, and I asked her the same question. Do you believe by opening up your voice and singing to these soldiers you can maybe reach one of them? And the answer is yes, then I support your trip um, to anywhere, to any dark corner of the world. Mm -hmm. Again, if you operate on a level where you don't really believe that's possible, then yeah, you, of course, you, you're visiting an apartheid state will uphold um, their practices. Some of your poems you touch on uh, First Nations the history of colonization in the Americas. Do you see that as an important um, connection in your work, recognizing the history of this land, talking then about Palestine? Yeah, I definitely find the continuum in the human experience of the transfer of indigenous populations and then the subsequent um, ghettoization of these indigenous populations. So I think a lot of it is about the language that you begin to develop as you grow as an artist and as you develop as a human being. And can you begin to find language that illuminates the continuum as opposed to I think for me as an American citizen, it's really important to say I'd prefer we have a Native American president as an aim <laughs> of our nation than um, a president who ticks a box. Well, now we have an uh, African-American president for the first time. There was a cover of the New Yorker magazine that caused a lot of controversy. Uh, Michelle Obama was portrayed, uh, in some ways you could say, uh, almost as if she was uh, Asada Shakur mm -hmm. or a member of the Black Panthers. Barack Hussein Obama was portrayed as um, <laughs> Hussein Obama, let's say. Um, there's a lot of questions of cultural identity that are coming forward with this past election and now today. But at the same time, it seems to be quite surface level. Yeah. There's some deeper questions about colonization and yeah. and... Is it not absurd that we have a comparison between Michelle Obama and the Black Panthers, mm -hmm. for example? Yeah, it is absurd, especially when Angela Davis is still alive. <laughs> and Kathleen Cleaver, you know, they're vibrant, genius, legal minds who are actually creating, producing, and analyzing our society. And people were overjoyed by the possibility of what Obama and his administration could be. And I think... A frustration has been how to have a conversation with people about his economic and foreign policies without taking away 
their true joy over the possibility <laughs> that this could be different. Um, that's an interesting conversation one must have. I think, you know, the traditional kind of left of center approach is not going to serve us. We have to think of a new way of talking to people. In terms of Obama, how do you feel as a Palestinian about his election? I absolutely knew that um, through his cabinet that I was getting an administration that would uphold the dominant Zionist narrative about Palestinian history and Palestinian reality. And I think for anyone who watched uh, Operation Cast Lead from the sidelines and from the periphery, the irony of, you know, after Christmas and before the inauguration, dropping all those bombs on all those young people, which is what Gaza was, dropping bombs on young people. The irony and the cynicism of that is very nasty to me. However, I have read A People's History of the United States, and it's actually part of our trajectory as Americans. This is what we do. We actually put on like the fashion of progress and the look and the, the style of progress, but we are not making much progress, especially when it comes to Palestine. I mean, Rahm Emanuel has an agenda, and that's the agenda that our president is engaging with. And until there are other agendas and other perspectives that close within the inner circle, I don't really see a change in our policy. The importance of the Palestinian voice through, through art. I mean, um, there is celebration across the Middle East for figures like Feirouz from Lebanon, or recently people mourn the passing of Darwish. But there's a new generation and uh, at the same time a reinvigoration of the Palestinian struggle that we haven't seen for decades. So how important do you feel the cultural voice will be in this, this last push towards victory? First we have this huge vacuum left by Darwish because Darwish became a national poet to several generations and Darwish died at the peak of his craft. I mean if you were following Darwish you know, after the age of 60, he was coming up with metaphysical concepts of language and, you know, Palestine is a metaphor. I mean, this, this is his last kind of, his legacy to us is this concept of like, what if Palestine is a metaphor? What if after all of our uh, real life blood and sweat clashes over land and nationality and identity, what if all of this is a story? What if all of this is metaphor? Um, so there is a real void left, I think, in that way. Because Mahmoud Darwish was able to speak to my generation and my parents' generation in a way um, that this new generation, whether it's through hip-hop music or film or video art and different genres of art, they're going to have to find a way to speak to multi-generational experience. You're doing that. I hope so. Seems like it. <laughs> I mean, I hope so. I've always, you know, respected my elders and loved the culture that I came from through its contradictions. Mm -hmm. And I think the most honest thing we can do is, you know, convey our contradictions. Yeah, that's where the magic is, you know. The magic in our humanity is within our contradictions, I think. I can see increasingly that you're being referenced as a cultural symbol of, of Palestine and North America. How do you feel about this role? Is it overwhelming? It's over done. It's the same paradigm of uh, scarcity. You know, it's this idea that there can only be one or 
there's the one or there's the two or the three, whereas I believe in abundance. And so there is like my own personal reality and my own personal career experience of often being the only Palestinian in a space or the first Palestinian in a space. And so therefore you kind of have your own experience of that. However, um, you know, HBO, their new series is uh, Brave New Voices. It's their new deaf poetry series. Um, it's all high school and young adults, mm. and it's like a reality show. And they follow them to like the youth championship, right? When they started taping, the director Stan Lathan called me, and they were taping like nationally, right? And he's like, Suhair, we have six young Palestinian girl poets who are trying out for the show. So you know, you play your position. Someone opened the door for me to step onto Broadway, and I had to leave the door slightly ajar. You just play your position. So we're all one. I mean, I really, I really do believe that. And every time I get this opportunity and I have a microphone in front of me, that's one of my brothers and sisters who doesn't, and I'm aware of that privilege. And you know, sometimes the responsibility is to to hand the opportunity over to somebody who's better qualified than you are. And if I'm the best person for the job, I'm going to do the job. But if there's somebody better than me, I'm going to step aside. Uh, Hip-hop in Palestine. Um, are you excited by this, this translation <laughs> of Palestinian resistance through hip-hop music, spoken word, poetry? Yeah, I mean, you know, on a really personal level, it's like I dreamt it up. You know, it's like you're <laughs> walking into your dream. The first time I went into Lid, I was... I would imagine I was 28, I guess, that trip, 27 or 28, when I went to Lid for the first time. And uh, I meet them in my father's hometown that I'd heard all about all my life. And the town that he told me about was not the town I experienced. I experienced the ghetto of Lid, you know, which includes all of the trappings of all the ghettos I'd ever been to in my life. And then for those young men and women to call on and depend on voices from Brooklyn <laughs> to like help them find a conduit for what their expression it is surreal do you know I mean it's surreal to me and so um, if I dreamt this up I, I would love to see what they're going to dream up and there's an expansion of both things so you have the Palestinian resistance to the Israeli occupation and the Israeli dominant narrative and then you have the form of hip-hop culture Okay. not industry. Okay. Um, so you have the content and the form. And these things coming together expand both. So therefore, the f hip-hop itself should expand Palestinian nationalist thought because now we know and we have heard the stories of others who have dealt with authority and are responding to authority. How can you have the same position after you've heard an entire body of music? You should be more informed. And at the same time, uh, nationalist uh, or self-determining vernacular has also changed. And they have to see that the vernacular and language that the youth are using is legitimate, and it speaks to their reality. They go together, the content and the form. It's very difficult, I, I would imagine, to convey um, any sense of what went down, let's say, in South Lebanon in 2006 or in Gaza just most recently or throughout 60 years. When you're on stage putting forward a poem, do you think about trying to convey that reality through your poetry? Is it overwhelming in a sense. I mean, if you picture a mukhayim or a camp in your mind and, and what that really means, and you're speaking to a North American audience who's never seen what that means, yeah. it must feel overwhelming yeah. a bit. Well, part of that process actually happens in the writing. 
So there's that's the first thing, which, that, that idea of what am I conveying, how am I articulating this, what is the point, what am I distilling, that's actually part of the gestation and the editing, the final version, let's say, um, of the poem. What happens on stage? And Darwish talked about this. I love, I often go back to this thing that I heard Mahmoud Darwish say in a film one time, which is the poem on the page has a life of its own, which I've always believed because I never thought I'd be on stage. I always was interested in writing. And that's still what feeds me as an artist is the actual writing process. Once you enter the public sphere, you are an engaged citizen in the public sphere. And then I think about what am I trying to convey with this poem. I'll tell you the other thing is that like, I try to make eye contact and real emotional contact with folks because if I were to think that 200 people are watching me (laughs) or listening to what I have to say, I would freeze. And it happens sometimes Mm. when I kind of get out of the moment and realize what I'm doing. I think, what am I doing? You know, I'm sharing my innermost thoughts and dreams with strangers and they're here and they're open and we're open. It's a very strange reality in the kind of economic commercial marketplace that we all like thrive in and or not thrive in. Um, So... You know, on a personal level, I have my own insecurities and my own fears. Um, And as Audre Lorde said, you're going to continue to have them. You're going to still be afraid. You know, Audre Lorde has this poem, Litany for Survival, and she says, so it is better to speak knowing we are still afraid. It doesn't matter. You're still going to be afraid. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, Mm -hmm. you just kind of go through the fear. In those moments where you freeze, do those images come to mind? Recently, with the newer poems that I wrote during Operation Cast Lead, I am surprised when they're over. I just follow the words and the visuals that come with the words. And then, like, the physical experience on stage is, oh, my God, I'm coming to the end of this poem. Or, <laughs> like, I have to prepare myself for the next thing. I actually just kind of feel it. And um, I don't watch myself, for instance. And that helps a lot because if I were to see what happens... It would become a different thing. And so I think uh, the fact that I don't I watch myself and that I try not to think of what's actually happening on stage um, helps me. There are other people who are much more qualified and kind of prepared to do public performance than I am, but I, I try to learn. Tell el Hawa. What day is it? Alkaline of neck, alley base of musk, alcohol top note. What the night was like. Blooming sky, white smoke, blackout, a dawn flaming life. So long this winter, so cold this shadow. What day is it? A woman dreams a baby years. Embroiders, wishes, names, angels, a future onto cloth. The people carry her child, shelled streets, shaheed. What day is it? A father works hours to bone, to feed, seed, dress them, bless them, buries them. His pain, a sonic collapse. Who can imagine? Today, the first day. Last night, the worst night. That was a conversation with Palestinian poet Suher Hamad that I recorded in 2009. This week on Free City Radio, I'm going to share a few archived interviews that I didn't get a chance to uh, put out through the podcast network. I had COVID this week, so I wasn't able to uh, record um, interviews uh, at the same um, speed as usual. So I wanted to take this opportunity to share a few interviews from the archives. 
So thanks to Suhair for this conversation from 2009. Um, this has been another edition of Free City Radio. I'm Stefan Christophe in Montreal. You can reach me anytime at stefan.christoff at gmail.com. Um, I'm on Twitter at Spirodon, S-P-I-R-O-D-O-N. And um, please tell a friend about Free City Radio. We're both on iTunes and also Spotify now. And we broadcast every Wednesday at um, 11 a.m. on CKUT 90.3 FM. I'm going to go out with a piece of music from a great artist in Vancouver, Secret Pyramid. Talk to you soon.